Hey entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where HostGator comes in. HostGator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, HostGator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit foxcitiesmm.com slash HostGator today and let your journey begin. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. We're back again, ready yep. for another killer story. Yep. Is it Murder and Mayhem or it's not? It's, yeah, it's Murder and Mayhem, sure. It's definitely murder. It's murder for sure. I'm going to actually take out my notes for this one. I don't know if I need them, but I'll just have them in front of me. Because yeah. you never know. For the, for the for the people that don't understand what Gavit is saying is we just recorded a previous, we recorded a mock Milwaukee Mafia episode, and he did it completely without his notes. Yeah. Mostly because his notes happened to be 50 pages long. Well, so. that, that section wasn't 50, <laughs> 50 pages. pages. But, but it, most of the stuff doesn't. People don't need to know it. But it was taken directly from your book, so it's pretty fresh on top of your head. Exactly. So. I mean, I'm I'm spending a lot of time with the material. So, But anyway, so that's okay. a different podcast. That's a different podcast that you should definitely subscribe to yeah. if you're not. Milwaukee Mafia. But Fox City is Murder and Mayhem is the podcast you're listening to, to right, right now, now. And you are, we're so appreciative that you are. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're going to tell you a story. And uh, so, so, Eric, how's it going? Good. Good. So today's story is, one. we're going to talk about paternity tests. Okay. We're going to talk about police brutality. Okay. And this is probably, no guarantees, but probably the final Kakana story I'll ever tell. Oh, and I remember you saying, a co- maybe it was the last episode we recorded where you said that we were coming up on probably our fa- last Kakana yeah. episode. So. Yeah, because this is this is the last one, at least that I know of, something else might turn up, who knows. But the last one I know of that's old enough that I can tell it. So, So what year is this one set in? This is 1956. So if anybody out there is looking for a place to live, the last time somebody was killed in Kakana was in 1956. No, that's not true. I know. That is very not true. That is very not true. I mean, there's been been like five in the last two years. Wow. Has there been that many? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about that on here, but... All right. Well, take her away with the story. Let's see what you got. Okay. <clears throat> so this is a story that people still talk about. This was a story that I knew by reputation ahead of time because people who are, I mean, they're they're getting up there now, but the people like in their 80s, they still remember this, you know? So do you think I'm going to remember know this story? I don't know. You're not in your 80s. No, but but like you said, people you know still talk about it. Well, we're the same age, so I must know somebody that's in maybe, the right age maybe. to talk about it. You probably it, don't talk to as many old people as I do. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I talk to a lot of older people. <laughs> anyway, so it's it's March. It's 1956. It's just before St. Patrick's Day. 
which isn't relevant, but I'm just letting you know it is. <laughs> this is the story of high school junior Michael McCormick, who is 17 years old. He lives on Quinney Avenue in Kakana. And I'm going to let, this isn't going to be a mystery at all. I'm going to let you know what happens right up front. Okay. Okay. So he meets Teresa Vander, Vanderhorst, 18 years old, who lives on Law Street. He meets her in a basement on West 9th Street. The house belongs to Michael's grandmother, who was not home at the time. Uh, I should also say that this house is in my brother's backyard. That's not relevant oh, either. Oh, really? Man, in, oh, like your brother's current backyard. My brother's current backyard. Well, that's weird, though, because we did an episode earlier that was like two houses down from your brother's yes. previous house. So your yeah. brother has a bad choice in neighborhood. Bad neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, they're meeting in this basement. Soon an argument breaks out, and McCormick strikes her over the head with a souvenir wartime shell case. A carload of these steel 37-millimeter anti-aircraft shells had been made during World War II, but the leftovers were shipped to Kukana to be melted down in the foundry. Some people kept some as souvenirs, though, before they got to the foundry. That's why there's <laughs> that's why there's these these empty shells laying around. And he hits her in the head. While she's unconscious, she's stuffed into a cool chute that was now being used as a potato cellar. Because of the way her neck was bent, she died of asphyxiation before waking up. The spot she was pushed into is described as a small closet-like room that could only be accessed from an outside door. All right. So see right off the bat, dead person. Yep. <laughs> Getting it out of the way. But, wow. Is this, is there more death coming yet? Nope. Okay. Nope. Okay. We're getting it out of the way. Okay. So if you're here for the death, we're done. But <laughs> the, the story is, there's still more to the story. McCormick leaves the basement and he goes to attend a basketball game that's at the high school gym. When he stopped in, several people at the high school gym noticed how scratched up he was. And they thought this was unusual. Late that night, around midnight, Teresa's father, George, goes to file a missing persons report with the police department. He talks to patrolman Charles Arnold, who's the only officer in the station. He brought with him torn-up notes that he had found in the wastebasket. One note mentioned meeting Michael McCormick in the basement, which the father thought meant his basement, but there was no evidence that she had been down there. Patrolman Arnold at first did not want to pursue the report. He said... This girl's 18 years old. It's only midnight. She's probably out on a date. And even even if she's not out on a date, she's a legal adult. She hasn't, no. she hasn't even been gone for a full day yet. It's not a problem. But the father insisted that the officer took a look at her description. He's like, this is not something my daughter would do. The police called around to other police agencies to see if she was involved in an accident or at area hospitals. And her name did not come up. The father returned to the police station at 1.30 in the morning, so about an hour and a half later. This time he brought with him his daughter's purse. It was still in his daughter's room with money in it. Her clothes weren't packed. There was no suitcase missing. So it wasn't like she was planning on going anywhere for the night. He also brought more torn-up notes that expressed her love for Michael McCormick. And she wanted to marry him and run away. The father had no idea that his daughter felt that way about anyone but knew that she had dated Michael McCormick for a while. 
The patrolman knew Michael McCormick because he was a really good athlete in the school's basketball and football teams. He goes, oh, yeah, the McCormick kid. He's great. (laughs) The patrolman called the McCormick house. Again, this is like 1.30 in the morning. Wakes everybody up. Michael says, oh, I'm surprised that you'd call here. I have not seen Teresa in, uh, in quite a while. And the police believed him. Police then called the chief, Harold Ingerson. And the chief said, oh, the girl's probably just on a date. <laughs> At one thirty in the morning. Still on a date. <laughs> 1.30 in the morning. But, you know, if she's uh, if she's still missing in the morning, I'll take a look at it. Trying to sleep. He's, yeah. like, he's like, I'll deal with it tomorrow. <laughs> well, the next morning, the girl's still missing. Chief Ingerson actually knew the girl's family, knew that she was a good kid, and knew that she had grown up the best that she possibly could. Her mother had died when she was only nine years old, the girl, not the mother. Uh, He goes, but despite that, the father was a good father, raised the family well, everything was great. So something was very wrong if she didn't return by morning. But not enough to address it at night. She's 18. (laughs) If she wants to go on a date till 1.30, that's her business. (laughs) Michael McCormick goes to work, just as he would any other day. The police stop in and question him, but he said... No, I seriously, I haven't seen Teresa in about a month. I mean, I see her in the hallway at school, but other than that, it's been like a month. Yeah, I dated her, but we broke up like seven months ago. I've dated dozens of girls since then. I'm a star athlete. I date a lot of girls. <laughs> like, did he really no, say that? Oh, no. I was going to say, man. He did, he did date. It does say he dated dozens of girls, <laughs> okay. but, I'm, but I'm adding in the athlete part. Because <laughs> yeah. that would be some arrogance. No. <laughs> I don't know word for word what he said. But. When asked about why he looked all scratched up, he said that he had picked up a stray cat. He said, if a stray cat on the street on the corner of 8th and Crooks. Which is oddly specific. <laughs> that is really specific. Well, that's where he picked up the cat. He said, this is where I was. He goes, I left work last night at 8 o'clock p.m. I met two friends at the post office. We attended the basketball game. It went till 11 p.m. We stopped at the malt shop. And then I was home at midnight. The police checked this and everything added up. The friends said, yeah, he was there. People saw him at the basketball game. And people, yeah, they saw him at work. So this timeline all added up. If he left work at 8.05 and he met his friends at 8.50, that left 45 minutes where he only had to go a few blocks. And they said, that's a suspicious gap. Well, maybe he was feeling bad or something. But Michael McCormick goes to see the chief a little bit later. And he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. That cat story, that was that was a lie. <laughs> that didn't happen. Here's what really happened. Okay, it was Friday night. It was last night. I was picked up at my house by Teresa and some man from Appleton that I don't know. They threatened me. They said I was the father of Teresa's unborn baby. And they told me that unless I married her, I would never see my parents alive again. So McCormick told Angerson that, you know, if she's got a baby, like, it wasn't me. We never did that. That did not happen. Uh, So it's not mine. He goes... The scratches, yes, those came from Teresa. They happened in the car because I thought she was being hysterical, so I slapped her, and after I slapped her, she scratched me. But then they dropped me off, and I don't know where she went with the Appleton man. I don't know what happened after that. Which, which, as you guys know, because I I started with the lead, this didn't happen. (laughs) So at this point, I'm going to take a slight detour. So we're going to talk about Chief Ingerson for a moment here. Okay. Chief Ingerson was tall. He was solid. 
He was an imposing figure. <laughs> stories about him still get told in Kakana today. Some of these stories I cannot repeat in public because they are pretty, pretty bad. Meaning like he was just a bad guy? Not that he was a bad guy, but he said some things he shouldn't say and some of his police work was not okay. And I also have to ask the question, that description you just gave of him. Yeah. Did you just look at a picture of him no. and then come up with that description? No, that's how he's described. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, again, this is 1956. Angerson joined the police force in 1928 as a part-time motorcycle officer. At that time, the police, Kakana Police Department only had four officers. He rose up to the ranks of chief. His brother Carl was also the city's fire chief. So the Ingerson brothers were, you know, pretty big, pretty big guys. When he passed years later in 1977, the newspaper said, and I am going to quote this year, quote, Ingerson was a no-nonsense officer of the law. He had no compassion for crooks, and his scorn as well as his strength intimidated them. He took pride in making the community an unhappy place for undesirables. His classic system of interrogation included grasping the accused by the hair at the top of their head and tilting their head up so the accused had to look him in the eye. Pretty sure that's it's not a, okay. <laughs> I was going to say. So um, maybe when he was chief it was okay, and maybe in the 70s when they wrote this it was okay. But pretty sure <laughs> that when you're trying to get you to test, not testify, but to confess to something, grabbing you by the hair is a no-no. Oh, no. <laughs> Ingerson was doing some thinking, and he thought, you know what? I think maybe the basement isn't the girl's basement. Maybe. maybe it's the grandmother's basement. And he put this together because for a while, when Michael was younger, his parents were divorced, and he went to live with his grandmother. So he would be familiar with that house. Also, it was close to where his job was, so it'd be easy to get there in that 45-minute gap. But when he searched it, Ingerson didn't find anything in the basement. Hmm. What did he do with the body? Bum, bum, bum. That night, Ingerson went to bed, and he had terrible nightmares. And he said, I just can't get it out of my head. I know she's in that basement. I just know she's in that basement. I gotta go back. I gotta go back. So the next day, now or two days after the murder, two days later, he goes back and he says, can I please look in your basement again? And the grandmother is very nice. She goes, okay. And this time he looks, and he opens the cold chute. And inside, there's the body of a dead girl. Shut up. <laughs> Completely missed it the first time. time. Finds it. He calls the sheriff, the coroner, the district attorney. He says, everybody, get down here. As soon as the body is found, McCormick says, yeah, you got me. I killed her. <laughs> but I'm not the father of that baby. It ain't me. So did... Could they find out if she was actually pregnant at this point in time, or is that too early for... Oh, they find out. Okay. They find out. So, McCormick is taken away. Uh, he's brought to the county, to the hospital uh, in Appleton, to give a blood sample. So, they take him away before bringing him to the jail. An autopsy is conducted at St. Elizabeth Hospital. Cuts were found on Teresa's head, but no skull fractures. So, she wasn't injured too bad. The guy conducting the autopsy concluded that she had received a concussion and probably would have lived if she hadn't been propped up in the basement in such a terrible way. <laughs> because what killed her wasn't the cuts to the head, and it wasn't the concussion. 
It was being wedged into the thing too tightly that she couldn't breathe. Shut up. If she had been awake, she would have been able to get away. But being passed out, her windpipe was kinked and she died. Oh my god. Also turns out that yes, she was pregnant. And in fact, she had been pregnant for seven months. Wow. So Mr. Uh, Mr. Football Player was the baby. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know, but they broke up seven months, months ago. ago. So Yeah. So blood the blood that was taken from McCormick was used to try to establish paternity, but they couldn't be sure. The doctor said that the blood type of an unborn child is not clearly established and not reliable for trying to establish paternity. Now, I don't know anything about this. Like, I don't know how this worked in the 50s. Because mm-hmm. there's no DNA. Right. So, like, my understanding is the best they could do is, like, try to match blood type. Which and does... that's not going to tell you who the father is. Yeah, I mean... It could tell you if he's not the... F- right. No, it could, could it even tell if you're not... Because your kid could have a different blood type, right? I, I think they could. And that's why I'm not really clear. Like, maybe there's something about this I don't understand. But, yeah, I think it's like that. I think, like, they could kind of figure out if you're not the father. But trying to figure out... I mean, if you figure out, oh, this father probably had this type of blood, doesn't really narrow it down. yeah. I, that's weird. So I don't know the details of how paternity worked in the 50s, but I feel like it wasn't a very good science. So, I mean, I personally, I, I think he probably was the father, but we don't know. Yeah. He appeared in court a couple days later, but, uh, you know, he said, I, I got I to gotta wait. I got to wait a couple days to decide on uh, on how I'm going to plea. So can we hold off a few days? Say, okay, come back in a few days. Comes back in a few days, and he decides he is going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, my God. So, let's hear this. Why is he insane? Well, he is not insane now, but he had temporary insanity when he killed her. He was sane when he went in the basement, and he was sane when he left the basement. But for a moment, he was nuts. (laughs) That's... that that was their defense? That was the defense. Please tell me that didn't work. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so they go on trial. At first, he's going to be charged with second-degree murder, but then they raise it to first-degree murder because a friend of Michael McCormick comes forward and says, tell you what, a couple days ago, before the murder, I was talking to him, and he said, I'm going to kill that girl (laughs) yeah he goes i personally i thought he was joking but then there she is she's dead so then they changed said wow this okay this isn't second degree murder you planned this you were gonna you're gonna kill her so trial goes through the police testify you know the doctors testify this terrible friend testifies the terrible friend name is david mayer could still be alive for all i know but terrible friend your friend's on trial don't don't go tell the police that he was bragging about it. Well, I mean, if your friend's killing people, you should tell somebody about it. Yeah, I mean, so you in- should, but that's a terrible friend. <laughs> anyway, so the prosecution ends its case, and the defense attorney says, can we dismiss these charges? I don't think you successfully proved first-degree murder. And the judge is like, no, no, I'm not dismissing these charges. They're like, okay. For the defense, the only witness for the defense was Michael McCormick, 
who testified in his own behalf, which is usually a bad idea, but but he did it, and he said, yeah, I don't know what my friend is talking about. That conversation never happened. And he actually, he went through, and he gave, like, the whole confession that was, he never denied that he, like, hit her in the head and she died and all that. Like, he fully admitted that, but he wanted to be very clear that none of this was intentional. Um, at least give him credit that he was, he owned up to it. The jury deliberated for five hours, and they found him guilty. And so now when he found, was found guilty, it was a it was a first-degree murder. No. No? Okay. No, because when the, when the jury is sent out, the judge, I don't know if this is still how this works, but the judge said, here are the things you can do. The charge is first-degree murder, but you can bring back a lower charge. You can bring back first, second, manslaughter. You can decide that he's guilty, but he's not guilty because of temporary insanity, which they threw that out. They thought that was nonsense. Uh, so they ended up actually saying, no, we don't think it's first degree, but we definitely think it's second degree. So they, they brought that back. And the defense attorney said, okay, that's fair. And Michael McCormick said, yeah, that's fair. That's cool. And two days later, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Wow, that's... And what did you say? Because he was younger, right? He was 17. No, it was only... Okay, he was 17. I thought you had said he was a little bit younger than that. 17. The golden question. Yes. Well, first of all, we should... We should... He does actually go to prison. He does go to prison. Okay. He sent us us to 25 years. Would you like to guess how long he served? I am going to guess that he served seven years. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. He served a grand total of two years. Wow. <laughs> he must have been a really well-behaved prisoner, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay, so what happened? He was in, he was in for, for two years. He applied for parole. It was the first time he was allowed to apply for parole. It was after two years. And they said no. Then he was allowed to apply every six months thereafter. So the second time he applied, everybody in the parole board says, okay. So maybe maybe it was like two and a half years, but second, so he se- actually, se- second try, he's out. He just got parole. Yeah. Wow. I, I couldn't even imagine that if you got a 25-year sentence, you could get, get up for parole within two years. He got up for parole twice? Well, that's how it used to be. It used to be that once you were eligible for parole, you could apply every six months. I'm sure they've changed that, but that's... That used to be the rule. So, like, is your eligibility for parole part of your sentence? Like, I they, think they so. Sell 25 years, and then you get, you're eligible for parole after X amount of years? I think so. I, in this case, he was eligible after the two-year mark. So, I, I mean, I don't know the details of how they determine that, but in this particular case, it was two years, and he didn't get out on the two years, but then two years, six months, out. And I am going to venture a guess here that he... Lived his life out peacefully? Well, I don't know. Oh, you don't know. I don't know. This is the big mystery. Now, I've had people tell me that he's still alive. Really? Yeah. Because if he was 17 in 1956, that means, you know, he'd still only be in his 80s today. Yeah, that is very true. So I've had people tell me he's still alive, but nobody seems to know where he went. And and I tried to find that out. But I will tell you, the name Michael McCormick is not like a rare name. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. So trying to find him, I don't know. I don't know where he went. He could live here. 
He could live in another state. I don't really know. I was he he got out, and I don't know what happened to him after that. So, interesting. I'm assuming that he went on, lived a normal life, got married, had kids, all of that. Yeah, cause but he, I don't know because if he did anything else, that would be much easier to find than if he just continued to live. right exactly like if he lived a normal life well right and i mean so he went in he went in when he was 17 so he was already out by the time he was 20 so i mean there's a pretty good chance that if you're free at 20 you still got your entire life normal and i would assume that i can't believe they let him out after only two years but. i can't either <laughs> but and also you got to think of too that he probably I, I'm going to guess he probably doesn't live around here because I think that would have also been much easier for you to find than, mm-hmm. say, because if he moves to California, my God, that would be yeah extremely difficult to track down. Yeah, I don't think he stayed. I, I could be very wrong. And, and you know, if he's listening or his family's listening and you want to, like, Come on the podcast. Come on the tell, podcast. Tell us yeah. your story. We would love to have you. Yeah, I would say, like, I mean, I, I have... I have nothing bad to say about the guy. Like, I'd be, I'd love to know how things turned out because, um, although this was a pretty crappy situation, it's a crappy situation. Yeah. He made a terrible mistake because he should have. Yeah. You know, like he could have saved the girl's life. Right. If he would have knocked know, her out in the basement and not shoved her in the cold chute, she would have lived. Yeah, she would have been fine. Yeah. So, so, so that was a stupid move. But also, they did seventeen. Yeah. And and. uh I did a lot of stupid things when I was 17, so I didn't kill anybody, but I mean, but I get it. Yeah, and as we've learned from from other podcasts that we do that, you know, you can't define somebody by a small period of right. time in their life. Right. So. So, yeah. So, like I said, this is a story that still gets told around because there's enough older people that remember, like, I've had people be like, oh, yeah, I was at the basketball game when, when he showed up with the scratches, because being like the athlete, everybody knew, knew this kid. Wow. So good end of a good end of the Kikona stories. I'm I'm a little disappointed that we won't have any more to go through, but I'm sure one will surface at One some will point probably surface, surface, but like the other ones that I know and and you know, uh, I mean they're just too recent. We're not yeah, we're not going to do them. Yeah, totally. So all right, well, I think we'll wrap this one up unless Gavin you got anything else for this one. No, that, I was pretty thorough reading through those notes yeah. there. Uh, no, so that's that's it for that. If anybody has any suggestions for future stories, I mean, definitely reach out at mafia at gmail.com, and um, I'm happy to do that. I, most of the things, this one I knew about, but most of them I stumble on on accident. So, um, you know, unless I stumble on something, there's probably tons of stories that I don't know about yet. So. Yeah, so please send us some because... Like these stories are fun, and and I I would like to think Gavin likes to at least look them up and just learn a little bit about them. So I do. So if you know something that like you say, why is it not on this podcast? Yeah, we probably yeah. All you gotta do is send an email, and you'll probably see it come up. At, I would think relatively quickly in the podcast. I would think relatively quick. I've got a short list that I'm working from right now, but it's yeah. I could use some more. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Yeah, and next time's episode is in Calumet County. Okay, sweet. And it's it's about Indian justice. (laughs) Indian justice. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So. A lot of Indian stories on this podcast. (laughs) I don't do that on purpose. They just come up. All right. Well, we'll see you next week for Indian justice. All right. 
Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.